Good morning. So we get to continue on uh, in this uh, section of Romans, and I have the privilege of being in a short passage that is one of the most well-known, often quoted, memorized, put-on-bumper-stickers verses, probably in all of Scripture. Um, Say it with me if you know it, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Great. And it's so well known for a good reason, because this is a crucial verse for understanding humanity's universal need for a Savior. Now, how many of you can quote verse 24? No cheating. Don't look in your Bible. Verse 24. Kind of what I thought. Until a couple weeks ago, I, I couldn't either, I'll be honest with you. And in my opinion, this is one of the worst verse divisions in all of Scripture. Remember, the verse numbers were put in there after the fact so that it's easier for us to reference it. And I think this is really unfortunate Because verse 23 isn't even a complete sentence, let alone a complete thought. And if all we do is take 323, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, though it's true, if we take that out of the context of this passage, we miss the entirety of what this passage is trying to tell us and why Paul even says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we miss this amazing transition that Paul is making here in the book of Romans. Do you remember when you first learned how to drive? Um, Someone had to teach you all of the controls, right? There's the pedals, the brake, the gas, the clutch. Is it three on the tree or four on the floor? Uh, Turn signals, headlights, all of that. There's a lot to driving a car. Well, so what if all they taught you was, was the brake pedal? Okay, so here's how you drive a car. That pedal in the middle is if you want to stop. Here's the keys. Have fun. How effective do you think you're going to be able to actually get down the road and drive? That's what knowing only 323 does for us. It's important. We need the brake pedal. Absolutely. But there's so much more to understanding how to operate a vehicle than simply the brake pedal. So let's zoom out a little bit from just verse 323 that so many of us have memorized. Um, and let's look at the whole context that it's sitting within. So turn in with me in your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen. Uh, to Romans chapter 3. And we'll begin in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you start in Romans 1 and read up to this point, by now you probably should have your head in your hands going, oh my goodness, we are doomed. What hope is there? And then you arrive at 321, and you have this, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed in this new, amazing way. And that feels a lot different than just quoting 323 by itself, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 21, but now, it's a hallelujah chorus that erupts out of the doom and gloom of the first two and a half chapters. 
It's dark clouds parting and brilliant light breaking through. It's, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, Gandalf the White coming over the horizon with an army to save the day. It's hope being revealed in what feels like a hopeless situation. What Paul launches into in this moment in Romans, starting in verse 21, is not just in summary of what I've said over the last few chapters, y'all are doomed. No, Paul begins to lay out one of the most elementary, important, glorious doctrines of our Christian faith, what some scholars have called um, the hinge pin of the entire New Testament. It's the foundation of the entire reason that you all showed up to worship this morning, whether you realize it or not. In a sense, this is, this is the whole comprehensive lesson to drive the car, if you will. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, I can see it on your faces already. Oh, great. The pastor said doctrine. Buckle up. It's going to be heady. It's going to be deep. It's going to be hard to follow him. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully I've done a good enough job. It's not hard to follow. But it is going to be a little bit deep. And I'm sort of going there because it's critically important that we understand the justification, the doctrine of justification, because whether you realize it or not, you do believe something about the doctrine of justification, and it affects how you live your life. It affects how you think and act towards God. It affects and uh, changes how you act towards the church and what we do here, how you worship, how you listen to a sermon, how you take communion. Um, It affects the way you see your neighbors, your spouse, your children, And particularly, and I want to zoom in on this this morning for sure, how you see yourself. When your head hits the pillow, and it's just you and your thoughts, and you're not asleep yet, and your mind is going over all the ways you were awesome this morning or throughout the day, or alternatively, the one I deal with, all the ways that you failed and don't measure up, and all the reasons you don't deserve anything that you have. It affects everything in our life, whether we realize it or not. And so I want to take the time to go over what the doctrine of justification really means and why it's so critical for us. So briefly, um, I'm sure you've all heard this definition before. It's the very Sunday school answer definition. What is justification? Just as if I never sinned. And and that's not wrong. It's it's good to have that baseline definition because that is true. Um, But that's not all of what justification is. And if that's all that we believe, we're missing a critical component that affects how we live our life and how we see ourselves in the light um, of God and his love for us. So uh, the Christian radio station was on in my car a couple weeks ago. I wasn't really paying attention, just driving along. And I heard this song for the first time. It's kind of unfortunate. It's a Mercy Me song, and they've written a lot of wonderful songs. They're an awesome Christian band. Um, So no judgment on them necessarily. But this particular song is called Grace got you. And while I kind of try, I kind of understand what they're getting at. Um, They're trying to make you remember that you need to be excited. You need to be joyful about the fact that we are free in Christ and to celebrate what Christ has done. Absolutely. We definitely need that. But the problem is, is the way this song got written, the way, especially the chorus, um, got laid out, it's it's actually theologically dangerous and it, it teaches us and reveals to us what's really common in our culture right now, which is this misunderstanding of what justification actually is. And I'm not here to bash on the band or call them heretics or anything, but I feel like this song, it's important that we look at uh, this problem lyric uh, to understand why justification is so important and that we understand it correctly. Uh, So the lyric here, it's the second half of the chorus, uh, and it goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. Laugh till your whole side's hurting, Smile like you just got away with something. Why? Because you just got away with something ever since grace got you. 
Justification is not getting away with something. The notion of getting away with something is that you did a wrong, something bad, and, and nobody found out. Or nobody found out that it was you. And so there's no punishment, there's no recompense, the wrong isn't made right. You just got off scot-free. It's the thief who, ooh, thief. It's the thief who uh, walks out of the store with a backpack full of merchandise and he has a mask on so nobody recognizes who he is and he doesn't get caught. It's uh, fudging the numbers on your tax return and the IRS doesn't audit you. And the problem is, is that's just so far from the biblical truth of our sin. God knows your sin. He's acutely aware of every gory, juicy detail of all of your wrongdoing and rebellion. Uh, Jeremiah 16, verse 17 says, For my eyes, this is the Lord, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. And this creates a huge problem because God is righteous, which means that he's inherently just, and by his nature, he cannot allow sin to just go unpunished, wrongs to just not be made right. That thing cannot remain hanging unbalanced forever. So what does verse 21 say? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God. So in one sense, this, this new revelation, this but now, it isn't totally new because we were already somewhat aware of the righteousness and the inherent justice of God. Um, but that was through the law. That was through the prophets. That was through do's and don'ts that we had to follow and things that we had to um, obey. But now, what's amazing is that the, the righteousness of God is revealed and experienced by a person, Jesus Christ, whom we believe in, not a list of regulations and things that we do. However, the nature of the justice, the righteousness of God, doesn't change. There's no getting away with anything under the all-knowing, all-powerful God who sees everything. And Jesus is here, and there's now another way, but it doesn't change the, the nature that the transaction needs to be made. So that lyric, you got away with something ever since grace got you, uh, the other problem with that is that if that's all grace did, if all grace did was help you get away with something, it just covered your tracks you know, it just told a little white lie for you. It just kind of spit-polished and buffed out that little blemish on your inherent personal shine and worth and value. If that's all it did, it, it didn't do very much. Grace is cheapened when sin is minimized. I say it again. Grace is cheapened when sin is minimized. Grace is only amazing when you're honest about what it saved you from. That's why Paul takes two and a half chapters to line out in gory detail the depth of our sin and, and the depth of our offense against God and why we need to be saved. You didn't just pickpocket God's wallet and he didn't find out. You didn't just ding his car in uh, the grocery parking lot with your grocery cart and he didn't find out that it was you. Uh, in your sin, no matter how small it may seem, you've actually rejected the authority of the creator and sustainer of the universe. And you've said, though it doesn't necessarily seem like it at the time, you've said, I don't need you, I know what's best for me, and I don't need to obey you. And this seems a whole lot greater than a lot of the offenses that 
we know that we do? How can it really be that bad? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning of creation, the first humans, Adam and Eve, what does God say to them when he creates them? You can do whatever you want in the garden. You can eat of all the trees and the fruits. It's all yours, except the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that one, you'll die. And so Satan comes slithering in, and he starts making them question, okay, what did God really say? Causes them to doubt the relational integrity of God, and it leads them to disobey his command. And you think, come on, all they did was eat a piece of fruit. Like, what's the big deal? I mean, you wouldn't even get arrested for that today. If you ate an apple in Safeway, they'd just make you pay the 89 cents before you left it. What's the big deal? The big deal is that this defiant action of disobedience has broken the relational trust bond between God and man. So Adam and Eve question God's authority, and they don't trust God to be God. They don't trust God to be good. They don't trust God to be in control, to call the shots, determining right and wrong based on God. They go, no, I want to determine what's right and what's wrong. I want to determine what's good for me. God, you don't know. I do. And so they take it upon themselves to be God instead, and that relationship is severed. And so they're thrown out of the garden, exposed to toil, hardship, and death. The penalty for severing that relationship is death. There's no way around it. The Bible is clear about that. It's because sin breaks a relationship that's not just saddening or unfortunate. Oh, I wish they would have stayed together. That would have been nice. They were a cute couple. It's like unplugging a life support system. It must be plugged in if we want to live. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. All are guilty of injustice against God. And therefore, the righteousness of God requires perfect justice to be done. And the only way to do that, the only way to restore that relationship is wrapped up in this fancy word we find here uh, in verse 25 called propitiation. I'm going to read, let's see. Starting in, yeah, starting in the beginning of verse 25. So, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ was put forward as a propitiation by his blood for our sin. And that word is, it's very kind of a complicated theological word, but basically it's a very specific meaning. It means a sacrifice to bear the wrath, the penalty, the wrath of God that was meant for us in order to change God's wrath over to favor on us. And that second part is crucial. It's not just wiping the slate clean. It's turning wrath to favor. Now, some scholars would argue that this word propitiation should be translated expiation, which is another fancy word that basically just means to wipe away, like, like in erasing a chalkboard or erasing a whiteboard or you know, a pencil on paper, just making it like it never existed. And the problem is, is that's, that's part of what happened, but it doesn't rightly explain all of what happened in this transaction, and it, in essence, cheapens grace. You just got away with something. God does not look away from your sin and just somehow make it disappear. Because he is righteous, he takes it by the face and he stares at its face and he deals with it. He handles it. And he creates a way to reconcile that broken relationship, to restore the, restore the way that it should be, not just remove the offense, which, if you notice, is above and beyond the requirement for justice. All that's required for justice is that the wrong be made right. 
But he goes one step further. That's why this word is so incredibly important that we go from not wrath to ambiguity, clean slate, from wrath to favor with God. This is so important. And why did he do this? Is it because we're worth saving? Is it because we had some measurable qualities that were redeemable? We had some inherent goodness in us that God thought, yeah, I shouldn't kill them. They've got some good. They might benefit me later on in life. I might as well, I might as well save them, see if, see if they're worth you know, saving. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of megachurch pastors are going to be preaching in the pulpits, and it's all over YouTube and all over podcasts today. But what does this passage say? Why did God do this? If you look at the second half of verse 25 through to the end of 26, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So why did God's righteousness needs to be shown? That seems kind of interesting. Isn't that an inherent quality about him? We just, we just know he's righteous and, and it always is. Well, for thousands of years, like we were talking about with Adam and Eve, since the beginning of creation, creation has been sinning against God and he's never taken full action to 100% redeem and make all of that right. The closest he got was the flood when he wipes out almost all of creation. But even then he saves Noah and, and Noah's family and two of every kind of animal. That's far from full justice borne out on every single one, every single thing that has sinned against him. When Adam and Eve, the first humans, disobeyed God in the garden, God had every right to just destroy them right then and there. That would have been the perfectly just thing to do, is to just wipe them off the face of the earth and and maybe try again, I don't know, or go with a different plan. (laughs) But Genesis says, when Adam and Eve realized they were naked, once they had sinned against God, they realized they were naked, they were exposed to the shame of their sin against God. God doesn't smite them. In fact, he, I would go into it, and it's really cool to read all through it. Take some time to read Genesis 3 um, and Genesis 4, but we don't have time this morning to go through it. But he covered their nakedness with the skin of dead animals. Seems kind of weird. He covers over their sin by death of something else in their place. Now, there was consequence, of course. They're being put out from the garden, uh, the work turning to unfruitful toil, childbirth becoming incredibly painful. But his great love for creation stayed his hand from enacting perfect justice in that moment and provided for this way of atonement, this way of covering that humanity may still live. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you have drink offerings, sin offerings, this entire sacrificial system of rams and bulls and all of this stuff. And and it was a means to have a transaction that covers one's sin. It was an action for people to express faith in God's promised redemption to come. A faith in that God is the one that is righteous and I am the one that is wrong. He is good and I am not. And to look forward to that mended relationship, which we see hinted at and promised and revealed through time as we continue on through the Old Testament. It's an amazing study to look all through that, how much from Genesis all the way through to Malachi, you see it pointing to Christ and more revelation and more revelation. But all that all of that did was in reality push the due date of the debt payment, the perfect reconciliation farther out. The sin was not erased, but it was covered by a temporary life for life 
substitution. And so when we get all the way to the New Testament, finally, we get to the birth of Jesus, God incarnate, the full plan of redemption is now here. And it's finally revealed. There's no more mystery. There's no more ignorance. There's no more uncertainty. Um, It says in 25, this was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He, He held himself back from full wrath being borne out in that moment in his divine wisdom, his divine forbearance. Um, Acts verse 17, uh, sorry, chapter 17, verse 30 echoes this, um, this truth. Starting in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there was a time of ignorance. There was a time where we didn't know the full plan of salvation. We didn't know the full plan of redemption, how all of this sin was going to be taken care of. All we could do was hope, put our trust that God was going to do this thing, that he was going to be perfectly righteous and take care of this somehow. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that is Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there is still coming a day when everything is going to be made right. Technically, even though Christ's work is finished on the cross and by faith we can believe in that and have his righteousness, perfect righteousness and perfect recompense for all that has been done against God has still not yet been accounted for. The accounts haven't all been paid. And Christ raises from the dead in part, and ascends into heaven in part, to give us assurance of that reckoning that is to come, that Christ is going to come back. And this is actually going to happen. Everyone is going to have to give an account. God is still righteous, even though there was a forbearance period. There was, there was an ignorance period where God showed this grace through this means of the law. And of course, we could never keep it. That's what the entire Old Testament is for, is to show us that we couldn't do it. There will still be an account. Justice will be eventually served. God is still righteous. But we also know, and thank God, from all over Scripture, that God is love. And because he is love, he chose to redeem us himself, to show us his love. He took it upon himself to pay for the debt. What's the other most famous and often quoted verse of the Bible, the one you'll probably see in the stands and the football games this afternoon? John 3, 16, for God so loved justice that he gave his only, no, for God so loved the world, us, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in Christ's full payment for our sin, will not perish, will not pay the debt with death, but have eternal life, have favor with God. And in that transaction, we're we're given his righteousness, God's righteousness as a new identity. We're no longer objects of wrath. We're not just objects of ambiguity. We become objects of favor, objects of his love. The relationship is restored. It's not just now we're on common terms and okay, they're divorced, but at least they're friendly. They got back together. The relationship is perfectly restored. And this is a gift, all of this is a gift only received by faith in Christ. No effort, no law, no sacrifices, no things that we have to do except have faith that that's actually what happened. That Jesus actually did that. Believe that we can't save ourselves, but he could. And it's this gift part that trips us us up 
so much because we as humans have a really hard time holding perfect love and perfect justice in balance. It's, it's so hard for, for us to wrap our brains around it. And this is where Satan likes to get in and he likes to whisper lies to us. And it's always a lie of comparison. And there are two main ones. There are others. We're just going to focus on two. First, if we believe the lie that says our sin isn't that bad, especially compared to other people's, we can start to think that we can earn God's favor and it's therefore no longer a gift. We didn't need justice because the injustice, it was so minimal. Just forget about it, God. It's fine. It's not a big deal. I kind of deserve your love because I haven't been that bad. So imagine this scenario. It's Christmas time. Tree is up, the lights are everywhere, decoration, music is playing all over the place. By the way, it's November 1st. Husbands, consider this your first reminder. (laughs) And I go out and I find this thing I really want, and I purchase it, and I bring it home, and I wrap it up, and I put a tag on it, to, from, and I write, to Seth, from Megan, my wife. And I put it under the tree, and then Christmas morning, I open it up, and oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I've always wanted this. How did you know? Thank you so much. Does this gift reveal her love for me? No, it reveals my love for me. <laughs> Who gave the gift? I did. I can attribute it to coming from my wife, all I want, but all this gift is is just me loving myself and then telling myself that that's how my wife feels about me, whether it actually is or not. Hopefully it is. That's not a gift. The other lie we believe is that our sin is somehow so much worse than anyone else's, and we give into that oppressive shame. And it can somehow make us believe that this gift wasn't enough. Somehow we, we outsend everyone else. It was so spectacular. No one else could have done something as horrible as we have done. So imagine the same Christmas scenario, but instead I've been a horrible husband all year. Just an absolute jerk in every way possible. And my wife buys me some crazy extravagant gift. I don't know, a, a new truck, a, a custom hand-built guitar that I've always wanted. Uh, something that's just so expensive. So how in the world did you pay for that? And instead of thanking her when I open it up, I go, how much did this cost you? I'll, I'll pay you back every penny. Don't, don't worry about it. Well, now it's no longer a gift because I'm just attempting to purchase it. There's, there's no way that you could love me enough after what I've done to you to be able to deserve this gift. This, this, I, don't, I don't have a way to rationalize it. So the, so the way that I'm going to make sense of this in my mind is I'm just going to buy it from you. I'm going to pay for it myself. The problem with both of these is, once again, I'm just earning the favor. I'm earning the justice on my own. I know I was harping on Romans 3.23 earlier, but it is profound. It's super important. There's a reason that verse is where it is in this passage. It's the great equalizer. No one has ground or merit for justification. No one has ground or merit for attaining to salvation. All have failed to live up to the expectation. There's no exception. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, if you're rich or poor, if you have a PhD or you're an elementary school dropout, if you're a generous giver or a stingy miser, if you volunteer your time at a homeless shelter or sit in a dark room playing video games all day, if you're a bubbly, irritatingly optimistic person or battle anxiety and depression on a daily basis. No one measures up. But, this is really important, Neither has anyone failed so hard, 
that they became an exception and are unlovable. Everyone is equally guilty of sin. There's no hierarchy of sinners. There's no categories of sinners. And this means two distinct but very connected and important things. First, no one's sin is worse than yours. And your sin is no worse than anyone else's. Some of you need to hear one, and some of you need to hear the other one. The first one, no one's sin is worse than yours in the sight of God. So stop pointing the finger. In Romans chapter 1, the practicing homosexual and the murderer are listed in the same sentence in the same breath as the gossiper and the disobedient child. The one who doesn't go take a bath is in the same category as the one who murders. James 2.10 says, Forever, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So humble yourself and realize that your sin needed to be paid for. Your sin had to be paid for. There was no getting away with anything. And be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. Praise God that he chose to pay it. That's the problem if we think that our sin wasn't that bad. Because now we're not very thankful. God didn't really do something that amazing. Grace isn't that amazing. He saved us from this minor little trip up because otherwise I'm awesome. And now there's no gratitude for what God has actually done. There's no thankfulness for his goodness and the reality of what he's done. And secondly, if you tend to believe that your sin is no worse than anyone... uh, Sorry. You need to believe that your sin is no worse than anyone else's in the sight of God. Your sin is no worse than anyone else's in the sight of God. That actually is good news. There's no reason to beat yourself up or mope around in shame. Now, sure, earthly consequences are going to be different. That's just the reality of of injustice and justice and the way that God has set up this creation to work. There are some earthly consequences. But in the sight of God, there's no distinction between sin. Take heart and believe that your justification by faith in Christ is a gift and that he could afford to pay for it. His death on the cross was enough. It paid for all of your sin. There was no sin that somehow you managed to squeak by and go, I don't know if I can afford that. There's a reason that Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished. You need to stop trying to make the law work. You need to stop trying to figure out a way to reconcile to God by showing him outdoing, you know, doing more good things than bad things, or, or just giving up hope and assuming that you can't be saved. You can. It is finished. Jesus didn't say, I did my part, you take it from here, go the rest of the way. It is finished. That's why it's so important that we understand that we didn't just get away with something. The slate wasn't just wiped clean. It was, but not just. It's not just that we're no longer objects of wrath and now we're objects of ambiguity with this clean slate to start off fresh and figure out how we're going to earn God's favor. We don't have to prove anything to him. We, didn't, we don't have to prove that we were worth saving, that we had potential somehow. The work of Christ on the cross absorbed the wrath of God and turned that wrath to favor. The infinite love and favor that God has for his son 
that we see when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. The clouds part, a dove descends, and we hear the Lord say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is what God now says about you, about all of us. If we have faith and align ourselves with the reality that Christ's crucifixion actually did a thing and it was enough. That it was our sin that put him on the cross and that it should have been us hanging there, bleeding and suffocating to death. But he did it instead. Just like we could do on our own, nothing that could save us from the wrath of God, now in Christ, through faith, nothing we can do can remove us from the favor of God if we have faith. Any amount of faith. A whole bunch or a little. As a side note, generally the strength of your faith determines the amount of peace you may have in a troubling circumstance, how much you can endure, but it doesn't change how saved you are. It doesn't change the amount of favor that you have from God. So take heart there too. Any amount of faith in Christ is saving faith. Any amount. If you're doubting, it's okay. Any amount of faith in Christ is saving faith. So which do you need to repent of? today because we all deal with one of these is everyone's sin worse than yours you somehow managed to be best of the bunch top of your class or did you somehow manage to pull off a sin that's worse than anyone else in history i know that's the category i tend to fall into most of us i would argue all of us deal with one of those issues and as we come to the table of communion this morning in taking the cup and the bread, hopefully you have one. If you don't, you can just raise your hand. We can get one for you. Or they're, they're back there by the, the entrance. As we take the cup and we take the bread, we acknowledge that both our sin required a payment of death, that Jesus' death on the cross was the only thing that could pay for it in lieu of us dying and paying for it ourselves. And that this payment of Christ's broken body and poured out blood, it paid it in full. This paid it all. Well, not this, but you know, what this represents, paid it all. We're not only debt-free by that finished work, but favored, once objects of wrath. I'm going to say it again so you get it. That's the only thing you get from the servant. You are not an object of wrath if you have faith in Christ. You are now an object of favor, an object of his love through faith in Christ. So as we take communion, I want you to first take a moment with God in prayer and and ask him or admit to him if you know which one of these you struggle with, which one is the one that trips you up, that you're awesome at this and, and you deserve God's favor, or that you are so awful that there's no way you could deserve God's favor. Let's take a moment to pray, to repent, to thank him for what he's done for us.